Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of One Vision. Today, Bradley and I are just going to catch up with all the news from this week. There's so much going on, I, I think I am actually losing track. First, let's start with the MasterCard and Finicity deal. $825 million, and it's the second Utah FinTech blockbuster deal of the year. Apparently, something amazing is going on up there in the great state of Utah. I believe it was back in April when um, the first mega deal was announced that was between SoFi and Galileo for $1.2 billion in cash and stock. So, Brett, what do you think about the Finicity and MasterCard move? That's after um, what Visa did earlier this year with Glad. Uh, it's it's obviously something about the water in Utah. It could be the sky, it could be the clouds. I'm not quite sure, but the clean living, you know, creates clean value deals like this. Um, I think it's great. I mean, I think that this fintech has been around for two decades, and compared to Plaid, it's like you know, yeah, all told, this is probably like a billion dollar deal. But when you you know look at the difference, Finicity was one of these companies that actually came out using data for doing things like verification of assets, of income, of employment. And they've aggregated it for a long time. So it's like, I'm glad that they got their deal. But the issue that I have with these type of mergers with Plaid and with Finicity is that it's going to slow down the pace of innovation for the firm's acquired, right? So that always happens. The new parent digests what it just consumed. And there's all sorts of things that happen. Lots of people leave eventually. And it's it just slows things down. And these are companies that are really, really important to the ecosystem. The other thing is that you know some companies continue to play an important role in creating new business models, and we need these type of companies. And so Plaid and other aggregators, they, they need to be there um, because independence really warrants innovation. And the second thing I would say is that you know in the case of consumer data and control over our personal information, these large data platforms, well, they're just becoming larger, and you know they're acquiring more and more data, and we lose our choices. You know, both founders and fintech firms lose the choice to actually choose one over another or one over six. And MasterCard and Visa, well, they cater to banks. And while they are direct to consumer in a way, they really have large clients that they're going to be catering to. So I, I'd rather open banking actually be open banking and not moat-based banking, where there's yet one more hoop that not just companies, not just fintechs, not just startups, but consumers have to do in order to protect their data. So, so that's just, you know, data aggregation in a nutshell. For a quick second there, I thought you became Gela. Um, that's literally what, what, what you and her would have been talking about if she is here right now. Um, we should bring her back. Um, that was fun. But- <laughs> that was a fun episode. Um, we always learn a lot whenever whenever I talk to her. Um, that brings actually an interesting question that a few of us were bouncing off of social the other day. So what happens to the third company in question, MX, our friends? Um, what do you think they're going to do? Well, you know, I, of all the founders that I've ever really worked with, um, I think that we would probably both agree that this is a, a founding team that has a passion around not just you know, financial inclusion and financial wellness and financial health and all the rest, but they, they live this, right? And they've been doing this for a long time. Do I think they're going to have an exit? Yeah, I do. Do you think 
that they're going to have an exit though, where they're not going to retain control over the direction of the company? Absolutely not. And not that these other two companies we're talking about, Infinicity, and they've got a great group, they've got leadership along with Plaid. But my concern again is, is that MX is actually helping smaller and smaller institutions while they have huge clients, right? Like USA and others, they've got so many thousands now of community banks and credit unions that they work with that I don't want to get lost in that shuffle because these, you know, institutions are providing valuable service to their communities. And, you know, I want them to get an exit at some point, but I know they're going to do the right thing and they're going to do it the right way. And that's what I've always been very happy about when I work with that team. Yeah, I, I like that. I remember every time when we talk to them, their passion shines through, um, right? And, and they're doing really, really great work. So moving on to the second news of the week, uh, thanks to our friend Mary, who told us about it. It's um, Fifth Third Bank is partnering with Steady to help customers find jobs and maximize their earning opportunities. Um, it's, it's a space that we've been watching for a while now, right? Steady and, and a few other fintech firms. Um, one of the big gaping holes that we have from a financial services perspective is the ability to service the gig economy workers, to provide them with products and services, um, ways to not just to save, but also to invest, what to do with uneven income, how do you prepare taxes and all of those. There's just so much that that particular sector needs. And a lot of times when I look at the, the micro entrepreneurs, the sole entrepreneurs, you look at how our system is just so not set up to support them. And I can't help but think about all the stuff that's going on outside of the US, for example, in, in China and Southeast Asia, where all of these different solutions between Alipay, between um, Tencent Pay, between Grab and Gojack, all these companies that, that have become these super apps, not just interesting because of the fact that they surfaced multiple segments, um, of needs, but more so they were built to support that segment, the growing segment of gig economy workers who otherwise are not really being serviced well by the formal financial network. Yeah, I mean, when you look at Steady um, and, and one of their investors was um, Propel, which is part of BVV, they've been sort of deriving this idea that you need to help people on the income side. There's another startup that I work with called Stuvo which is doing this direct to consumer. They're populating 15 to 20,000 jobs a day. And they're looking at ways that you could enhance people's income as they understand their spend. Um, the, the, the challenge I think in, in what banks need to look at is that they need to be focused right now on the 44 million people that have recently filed for unemployment. They need to worry about, you know, not just are they gonna pay their bills, income to actually afford food. Um, we need more people and more solutions to be involved in bridging that gap to create real financial innovation. And, and the, the challenge, I think, for banks is that they should have been doing this the whole time, right? This is not a, you know, small community bank sort of thing. This is a national need. And you have bank CEOs from Jimmy Diamond on down saying, hey, we're going to help people that have less means. Um, Fifth Third is really stepping up with this. And I think more institutions need to look at you know, both companies like Steady or Even and Stuvo and others that help people sort of fill those gaps. Um, other ones uh, that, you know, kind of address these things would be like Oxygen um, and Joust and some others that are really focused on freelancers. 
it's um, what we always talk about. It's you know the fact that that jobs are changing, the future of work is changing. We have less consistent income. We have a lot different type of expenses than we did a decade ago. We have financial needs for women that are being addressed. We have financial needs for people of color, for people that are poor, for people that are lower income, and for small businesses and for entrepreneurs. So this is again part of what we've been talking about for a long time. It, it is. It is. Um, I think one of the stats that jumped out at me, which is really scary if you put that in perspective, is 70% of people that are in line at a food bank had never been in a food line at, in their entire life. And that was what um, Feeding America, one of the largest um, organizations that helps out the people that are food insecure, that's what they say, 70%, 7-0. That's a lot. And you know, you look at the unemployment stats, granted, you know, everyone is cheering for, oh, yeah, you know, finally, the quote unquote, adjusted unemployment rate in May has fallen to 16.3% from 19 and a half. I don't think that is a cause for celebration, because that is yeah. still at a historical levels of unemployment, there's still so many people that are unemployed. And on top of it, if you go down one level deep, the, the recovery, if you even want to call it that, is not even, right? Asians and African-Americans, their unemployment rates actually went up last month instead of, you know, improving as the other demographics. So it's it almost feels like we're repeating what happened with the last financial crisis. It backs the question, do we actually learn, right? Where is the bailout money going to? Is it going to, again, yet the big corporates with the with the thoughts that you know you will help these big companies retain jobs and everything else will flow down or have as we have learned for the last 10 12 years that does that's not always the case right you need to put money in the hands of the people that actually need it because otherwise you know the corporate ceo look at what what's been going on a lot of them were pledging oh you know we're going to take a pay cut for this month and next month and now three months have passed, it went back to how it used to be. It's, it's lip service, it's PR. Absolutely. When, when, you, when you look at the challenge uh, of this economy versus 10 years ago, you know, the, the banks were quite often blamed um, for what happened you know, a decade ago, or Wall Street with the combination of banks. Now, you know, it's, it's a, a pandemic that has impacted us, but it's banks that in many ways are going to be the villains, once again, if they actually don't consistently offer this help um, to customers. And, and going back to, you know, one of the changes that I think are, is going to come out of this is that there's going to be more and more sort of entrepreneurs or solo entrepreneurs. And you have, um, there was a report that came out by Javelin in July of 2019 that said there are 16 million Americans that are either self-employed or entrepreneurs that are new, you know, to, to running their own business. And, you know, there are, are fintechs out there like Lilly and um, North One and Bank Novo and Aslo and others that are sort of geared toward entrepreneurship, uh, along with Oxygen and Joust that I talked about earlier. And, you know, if, if banks, I think PNC is one of them, but if, if most banks don't look at, again, these growing areas of opportunity, you know, you years ago that the longevity economy was going to be a huge impact on the way we looked at banking going forward. And I would say that these other pieces, again, around the way that we are working, the way that 
you know, we need to look at communities differently in, in the way that we serve them. And it's just banking has changed. This has accelerated that change and there continues to be, you know, fintech solutions, startups that are going to be approaching these communities much, much differently than traditional banks do. I think that's important. I, I agree. Speaking of um, FinTAC and what they're doing, I want to give out a, a shout out to Propel. They were part of the Project 100 that is, is a way to get $1,000 to families who are in need. And what Propel did was they actually look at the database of their users and figure out who are the ones who are the most in need and actually work with its partners to put $1,000 in those families. Right. So think about where help is needed and how do we actually help? I mean, a lot of times we talk about, oh, my goodness, the, the deposits right in the banks for the last few months have increased and people were saying, oh, look, you know, people are actually saving. Is that really reflective of what's going on in the economy? I would say, no, that's actually kind of silly. I mean, Chase should not celebrate that they were the first three trillion dollar bank and think that um, because of this crisis that they did something right. Uh, if I were at a bank right now and I looked at even Wells and others like growing and growing and growing, you know, it's not, hey, we had victory over Fintex or, oh, you know, we, we have done something right that all of a sudden people trust us now compared to 10 years ago. It's not trust, it's fear. The reason why people are fearing you know, their financial future right now is because the markets have tanked, the markets have gone up and gone down. We have a madman, you know, who's in the White House and we have this pandemic. And so when you think about what is going on and you think about the, the banking industry, yeah, there's a lot to like say, you know what, thanks for not, you know, get going out of business. Thanks for not having a run in the bank where you physically had to like be distanced from each other as we collected our money, as we had to go into a branch. That's not it. You know, this is a time where banks need to be all hands on deck. I don't care where they are. They might be remotely on deck, but they need to be working to, to fix what is going on in people's you know, finances right now. There was a really interesting comment that someone made on Twitter yesterday. It said, oh, with, you know, the $600 that people got extra or the $1,200 that people got, you know, flowing to their account just because um, nobody has, you know, only $400 left or can't, can't come up with a $400 emergency fund. That is about the stupidest thing that I could ever, you know, imagine because that's not what is going on here. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I cannot agree more, but then again, is Twitter view, right? So anything goes. Um, speaking of the economy, um, another big news that happened is obviously the insurance tech unicorn, the darling, if you will, Lemonade. They are targeting a down round pricing with the upcoming IPO. Um, the details is they're expecting the IPO to price at $23 to $26 per share. And at that rate, they're actually taking a 25% hit from the last valuation. Um, is that 
going to be the way that is going to be for a while? Or are they just somehow they stand out? I think it's going to be harder to get money now, right? So just for a little while, and again, we talked about this on a previous episode with Arun, I think that, that funding is shifting a bit. And these sort of mega rounds, especially with SoftBank sort of, you know, being sidelined for a while, um, we aren't going to see these inflated rounds and we're going to see sort of return back to a normalcy, which was necessary, right? Uh, the valuations are going a little crazy when napkin stage companies were given multi, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to initiate something. So I think this is just, you know, return back to that normalcy. And even though I think Lemonade has a fantastic future, they'll likely go public before they get another round. Um, so yeah. you know, there were there were 22 IPOs by this time this last year, and now there's been six. So again, this is just a change in the capital markets and adjustment. And you know, with the pandemic sort of having an, a, another surge in the U.S., who knows what's going to happen with us? But globally, I think you'll you'll still see plenty, and uh, you'll probably see another couple big down rounds. Yeah, I mean, you know, in all, if we think about it, even with that hit, $286 million is not a small number, right? It's still pretty decent, especially given the climate that we are in right now. Um, and you're right. I think we have been seeing quite a few big deals that's still going on, especially overseas. And it seems like, you know, Asia might be recovering a little bit faster than we do in here. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting year or 2021, as we know it. I feel like we were written off this year. Um, so the next big news that we have is obviously the wire card uh, scandal, the fall of the cards, if you will. I had no idea, or perhaps I just wasn't paying attention. This actually started all the way back in October 2018 when the whistleblowers contacted the Financial Times and the FT published its first story in January 2019. That was a year and a half ago. And of course, everything took a quick downturn. 1.9 billion euros reported missing. Is it really missing or was it never there to begin with? The CEO got arrested. Um, and as it turns out, that um, its auditor, uh, EY, might not actually have been doing what it was supposed to be doing, the role of an auditor. I, I don't even know what to say. I am absolutely at a loss of words. Yeah, it kind of makes some, um, you know, companies like uh, Uber and WeWork and others um, seem a little bit more uh, stable or normal. I don't know. Uh, when you show up to an office uh, for Wirecard and find out that it's actually a fishmonger's house, uh, that's kind of interesting. And, and to your point, this is going back years. I mean, there, there were concerns years ago, and now in the last six months to a year, you've had fintechs that are issuing cards to them that now have a problem. They now aren't able to process transactions, issue cards, and they're effectively not necessarily shut down, but I would be concerned if I were a customer of some of these fintechs. Yeah, and, and I think the unfortunate thing is, you know, the list is, is quite long, as, as you had mentioned. Um, there are a lot of these fintech challenger banks that are being impacted. Um, for example, Anamoney, I've seen them issuing a notice on social media and telling their customers to withdraw their money as soon as possible. It is a really sad turn of events, if you will, because 
it's not really their fault, if you will, right? It's, it's because of Wirecard. But from a consumer perspective, I would suspect this will probably not be in good favor of some of these challenger banks because from their perspective, it's like, wait, what is going on with, with the bank? And I have to take money out. And a lot of times I'm looking at some of the comments, people are not able to get the money out, right? And so for them, it will be the perception of, well, can I actually trust these digital banks? I can't see them. And all of a sudden there are problems and my honey, my money is, is getting held up at the time when people actually need access to their, to their money. Yeah, so this is the critical time for that. And and just, you know, think about if, if this happened, you know, in mass to to um, fintechs here. There are lots of, of companies, I think the other day or last week or whatever it was, um, uh, they came out with a list from Anderson and Hortz, Horwitz that, that talked about the 20 to 30 different institutions that help issue cards and credit and all the rest through partner banks. You know, if it were Synapse or if it were one of these third parties like Cross River, and all of a sudden this happened where, you know, their assets couldn't be verified. They couldn't um, actually have, you know, what they have in the bank validated by a auditor. My question is not just the auditors, because honestly, rating, rating agency like Moody's and all the rest, um, they're part of the reason why we had a meltdown 12 years ago, right? They were one of the, the worst actors alongside banks in terms of valuing these assets a certain way. Where were the regulators? Where are the regulators when you talk about something that is this important? Um, went fishing? Probably. <laughs> had the, the house where they, you know, they had the office. I don't know. Exactly. Apparently so. And and according to the Financial Times article, I think that guy was baffled. He's like, wait, what? <laughs> um, he had no idea. Speaking of, um, it's it's end of June, right? It's been it's been a while. You mentioned, you know, since the last financial crisis. Have we, as an industry, actually been able to achieve what fintechs are supposed to do? What it was set up for? It's a massive question, right? And I and I posted that to to someone um, earlier today when I was in a panel, and. I would almost dissect it in different ways. There is no one generic answer, right? I think a lot of that is region-based. It depends on how fintech is um, influencing or changing the market in, in the US and in Europe versus what's going on in Asia. I think in Asia, if we look at um, the likes of Alipay, of WeChat Pay, of Grab and GoJack, those guys have done a massive job in closing the gaps. They have done a phenomenal job in enabling financial inclusion, not just giving them access to an account, but also enabling them to do things, enabling micro-entrepreneurs to get some money that they need to expand their business. Um, there was, there was an, uh, a stat that I saw earlier um, this year that talked about how many jobs, millions of them, that the small and medium enterprises that are WeChat users in China was able to generate because of the fact that they have access to funds. If we look back in the US though, I don't know if we can say the same now, obviously, you know, there are, uh, there are amazing number of FinTechs that have done a phenomenal jobs, right? So some of them are 
good friends of ours, Aspiration. I love what Andre does. Um, but has it actually finished or get close to finishing what originally the original FinTech promise was? FinTech, if, if there were a spokesman for, or a spokesperson for FinTech globally and in the US, would they say oh, that they were FinTech actually- FinTech Godfather, we need yeah, to ask okay. him. We, we should, <laughs> we should get him on here. That's true. That's why, why, why have we not had him on? Anyway, uh, we're talking about Jim Bruni, of course, at Finnovate. Um, if there were a spokesperson for Finnovate, Finnovate, FinTech, uh, and you asked them that question, would they say that their role in society was to broaden financial inclusion, to optimize finances for everyone, regardless of where they are and who they are and what their background was? Um, I don't know. I think that a lot of fintech startups were created because there was a need, right? Um, student loans were too big of an issue or payments between people were an issue or, you know, I wasn't able to Remittance. understand investing. So, so mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it, a lot of them were simply trying to solve one thing. If you look collectively at, at fintech, you know, as a, a noun, not an adjective around startups, and I know there's a lot of argument around that too. But if you look at why fintech exists, it's because banks were not meeting the needs of consumers. If you look at what fintech should be doing, it is changing the industry's focus so that more people, more broadly people, are financially able to control their own lives. And I think we have done that to a certain extent, especially over the last 12 years. I think that more people have access to payments, more people have access to savings, more people have access to invest, to credit, more people have their finances optimized. But the challenge is when we have a moment like this in history, we're going to see hundreds of millions of people that were quote unquote banked, have their banking access changed, denied, systems are going to tighten, access is going to be further controlled. The challenge I think that the end of the day, banks need to get on board with the exact same focus that fintechs have on taking care of the financial lives of their customers instead of their own balance sheets. That's what fintech has done. It's the tail that wags the dog. It is the passion behind the industry, regardless of the way you think about it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that's why Mr. Bradley is my partner in crime because I don't think I have come across anyone else who can put that as eloquently and passionately as he can. And with that, thank you so much for listening in for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next week.